God, yeah, you hear everything. Jesus Christ. All right. What is going on, podcast friends? Welcome to a brand new interview uh, podcast episode. This is with a cinematographer, Kenzen Takahashi, uh, based in the, the Bay Area, Northern California, for those of you who don't know what the Bay Area is, San Francisco. Uh, and we talk about uh, his his process, right, as um, as a cinematographer, uh, how he got started working as a um, as an extra on a on a show, uh, and then moving into uh, as a PA on on various different shows, different movies, including um, Venom, uh, the soon to be or hopefully soon to be released Matrix Four, um, Thirteen Reasons Why, uh, working as uh, working as a grip. Uh, on some of those films, and uh, kind of taking his uh, his experience and knowledge, working from you know from working professionals, uh, the people who we we were trying to aspire to be, and then taking that into his his freelance career as a um, as a freelance cinematographer, uh, being able to to collaborate with uh, with companies such as Sony, um, being on a Sony panel for the Sony FX9 uh, was an amazing opportunity for him. So we taught, we touch a little bit um, upon that. And again, kind of his journey, his, his process, because if you haven't seen his lighting breakdowns on Instagram or on Facebook, uh, definitely go check him out on Instagram uh, or uh, Instagram and, and or Facebook. Uh, because the guy's putting out some really, really not only knowledgeable stuff, but it's, it's, you look at the images and you can, you can see how much depth how much contrast, how many layers that he's he's able to put into his lighting, right? It's very naturalistic, uh, something that I'm very fond of. Uh, but obviously, if you see the lighting breakdowns, he is using lights. Uh, and and so it's a very interesting uh, podcast. And it, it was it was very um, very back and forth. You know, it's 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 uh it's rare when you when you have a very engaging podcast. But you know, I would ask Kenzin um, the question, and then he would ask me, you know, what what are my thoughts on that? And so it was really really cool. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, please do ensure to uh, go follow and check out Kenzen's work on Instagram and Facebook. It's Kenzen Takahashi. I will have a link um, in the in the show notes for um, for his for his handles and his profiles on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, definitely check out his reel because his reel uh, is is kind of like the reel that we're all trying to get to. You know, like a a very narrative uh, narrative driven uh, cinematography reel. All right. So, if you guys enjoyed this episode, let's go. Maybe, uh, maybe if you, if you want to introduce yourself and let people tell people who you are, uh, what you do as far as um, your your current profession, and, and then also uh, uh, kind of, uh, and then we'll kind of get going as far as like how you got started in, in the whole in the whole business. Yeah, my name's Kenzen Takahashi. I usually go by Ken, but um, I'm a cinematographer based in San Francisco. Uh, pretty new to the scene, honestly, because uh, and I, I guess we'll talk about this a little bit, but. Uh, I was a grip for a long time and then I've recently transitioned into full-time cinematographer and anyone who, who's done that transition knows that it's a, it's a tough one, but um, it, yeah, it's, it's slowly but surely uh, panning out the way that I'm hoping. So it's cool. There you go, man. There you go. Yeah. And I, you know, kind of going back to like your childhood, did it, was there anything that kind of got you, you know, sparked something when was it photography or like just watching movies as a kid and you, or was it completely different? Uh, yeah, I think like, uh, you know, like every child, I enjoyed watching movies. Um, I, I can't really attribute it to to like where, like the start of my career, but we did make home movies when we were kids. Uh, for some reason, it it doesn't feel like that was the start because, you know, we, we took like a 10 year break. Me and my brother, we would always make home movies. 
and then high school happened and our life got in the way we stopped doing that stuff but I think uh the the real start was was when I I was actually an extra on a tv show a Netflix show called 13 Reasons Why and that was the real start because I got to see kind of how the pros were doing it and even like learning like what a cinematographer was I had no idea I think a lot of people have no idea what it is um so just just being seeing the behind the scenes and like catching a glimpse on monitor and being able to like look at you know what the lights were doing in real life as opposed to what's monitor was like what's on monitor was really really fascinating to me and um that's that's when the, the passion really started yeah yeah, that's awesome, man. And you know, uh, yeah, as, as I think for a lot of people, it's it's uh, maybe they don't have like a direct a direct path. Like they didn't, you know, uh, they, they didn't have to go like the full route that a lot of people do. Sometimes it just takes like you know being an extra on on a show, and it kind of kind of yeah. inspires you a little bit, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, did you did you did you go to film school or anything, or was it just all self taught and how you got into? Yeah, no film school. Um uh it was yeah really it was just working on set so i guess there's a there's there's quite a few different ways people do it film school is one working on set is another and then just completely self-taught i would say i'm like in between self-taught and and and, uh you know getting hands-on experience on set I, i was fortunate enough to have a lot of really great mentors on set that i could ask questions to um so yeah no film school for me but um a lot of on set experience yeah. How, how how did you actually get that role as far as being an extra on um, 13 Reasons Why? Was it like a casting call or something? And Yeah, exactly. It was a casting call. Uh, yeah, it's like it's, it's one of those things that it's like such a small decision and uh, it just completely changes your life. You know, I think it was it was I was working at In-N-Out at the time with with um, one of my friends and, and he read on a newspaper. That there was a casting call in like 30 minutes. We were at like an In-N-Out meeting. And, you know, we weren't going to go. Um, but then after I got home from the meeting, I just called him. I was like, you know, what, why don't we just, <laughs> why don't we just go? And then we did. And it changed both of our lives for sure. And now we're both in the film industry working. Like that's, that's where our careers are, the trajectory is going. So yeah, it's just, it's, it's one of those little things. Yeah. Nice, man. Yeah. And uh, I guess, was, was there any, was there any, um, uh, what was the, the the path for you, or I guess the decision going from, um, uh, you know, being being on set and, and maybe working as as a PA to going into um, you know, and being being a being a grip. What was the decision yeah. on as far as going that versus like say um, a gaffer or some, something else, camera department? You know. Yeah, I think um, you know the 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 electrician. Like when I was an extra. I was always, I was never wanted to be an extra. Uh, I knew I always wanted to like do something else, except maybe very early on. Uh, so I was like, you know, constantly hustling, talking to the PAs, talking to the grips. And in terms of like, because c- the path was extra, then PA, then grip. Um, and to answer your question, like uh, when, when you see a grip on set, they're the ones that are really shaping the light. And like, you know, electricians, they bring lights in, they plant lights down, but my eyes were more drawn to, you know, what they were doing. They were flagging off the light, putting diffusion from the light and, and all was like really interesting. That to me was like really the art form of it. Um, at least what I could see, you know, like was just with my eyes without hearing the conversations and stuff. So that, that's kind of what drew me to, to gripping. Um, and 
I knew I didn't want to go down like I didn't want to become a key grip and I didn't want to become a gaffer like like gripping was wasn't uh was um what's the word um a means to an end just as you know extra and grip or and uh and peeing was so it was just all to get to that goal of eventually be, becoming a cinematographer yeah, yeah, that's definitely one way to go about it. You know, um, I, I feel like it kind of inspires people or it gives them at least perspective as far as, you know, uh, there's so many different paths and, you know, maybe there isn't yeah. there isn't like just one way to do it. There's so many different ways. Um, right. And, you know, for, for your instance, it was going from uh, extra to PA to grip, you know, and then into into uh, full fledged uh, cinematographer and being being behind the camera. Um, right. what, that, that's pretty cool, man, because, yeah, I, I did I did uh, watch um, The Edge of Purpose. Um, I saw on your oh, IMDb. interesting. You yeah, said, oh, God. I actually, I actually no. did, man. I actually did, man. How, how, how was that? Because I, I have shot plenty of documentaries, doc films, and also yeah. a lot of branded doc stuff for, um, for production. What was that like taking on the role in a documentary scenario versus like, say, um, a narrative, you know, where things are a little bit more structured? Yeah, I gotta say, I don't, I don't like it at all. Um, I, I hate the, Run, I guess hates a strong word, but I, yeah, I, I don't really like the, the run and gun vibe. I think that was the, 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 the documentary that made me realize that. That's so funny that you watched that. Um, cause I'm not proud of that work at all. I tried to keep that hidden. It was one of my first gigs as a DP. Actually, I think it was my very first job. I got hired as a DP. Um, but yeah, it's just like, like I really, really am very meticulous. Um, you know, anyone who's seen my breakdowns probably know that I'm, uh, uh, I'm a little bit hard, hardcore uh, in terms of like perfectionism, like even my little icons I try and make look good. You know what I mean? It's just silly. But um, so uh, the problem for me with run and grunt is that you just don't get to get, you don't get to create the, mo the most compelling um, images, in my opinion, because you don't have time to prep. Like for me, prep is the most important thing. That's what I try to get on in every project. Literally like, you know, uh, storyboard, not storyboard, but like take shots of, of every single shot that we're going to have on the short or whatever, and then plan out the, the lighting with the lighting diagrams and such like that. So um, yeah, I'm sure some other people agree with me, but then some people really enjoy that um, the, the, the type of freedom and and um kind of what's the word i'm looking for i'm sure you know what i mean like right like with documentary it's kind of it's like you sometimes get the most beautiful things because it wasn't planned for and that's something that's nice about it but it's just not my taste yeah <laughs> yeah one thing i've learned from from uh documentaries are are, are great i think when when it's a really good uh, when it's a really good story and there are obviously yeah. plenty of good stories out there the hard thing or I guess the challenge for me moving from uh, we're not moving from documentaries because I still do docs but I guess um, trying to separate like how I go about filming a doc versus filming say a commercial or like kind of two different two different beasts you know yeah, yeah. and um, it's it's you know knowing like with, with docs, you can you can make you can make a scene look really great, but it, usually it's like you have to be at the right place at the right time. Like there's no other way about it, you know. Um, whereas with the commercial, you can take your time to like finesse things, or even if it's like a narrative short drama, sure you can take your time to finesse things, you know. So it's like, yeah. you know, I, I I guess just being more more efficient on set is something that I, I love doing, and and docs can help you do that. But then they they may not push you in as far as 
uh, your lighting capabilities right, go, right. you know? Which do yeah. you like better? That's a that's a tough one. I mean, yeah. I I do enjoy I do enjoy doc films because um, I love documentary as a as a genre and telling yeah. stories about real people. Um, but I think I have more. F- I don't know. I think I have more fun on set when I can light it. You right, know, right. because it feels like it's more rewarding. <laughs> I don't know. It just feels like that. Yeah, it's kind of like putting your own stamp on something, right? Like like uh, anyone could. I mean, not anyone. You know, like not to you know. Uh, take away credit from some amazing documentaries but uh, it's just like it's so much it's easier in my eyes to just you know get a handheld b-roll of someone uh, than it is to to you know light an entire scene and and plan out that and that's really where like like putting the stamp like this is this is my image versus like am I doing it any different than if someone else were to be here holding this camera for documentary? And that, that's the big difference for me. I don't know if you feel that same way. Yeah. And no, I, I definitely feel the same way, you know, because if you uh, say you, you, you give two people who are uh, say you give two camera operators who are, you know, fairly equal in, in their capabilities and their, in their techniques and stuff like that. And you give them the same camera, the same lenses uh, you know, it's probably going to look the same, you know, like yeah. for the most part. But if you tell them, okay, you know, you have a day interior, you have this, you know, um, 10 foot by 10 foot room, you know, go light it. You know, I'm pretty yeah, sure they'll, yeah. they will light it in very, in two different, two different ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. Which is, uh, that, that's the, the that, yeah, that's something that's, that's definitely cool. Like I'm sure you and I would, would light things completely differently. Um, well, speaking- that's really yeah yeah no well actually speaking uh speaking of uh, of lighting um i mean because something that immediately drew drew my eyes to to the work um and you know social media is one of those one of those beautiful things about it is sometimes you just find someone out of nowhere you know like i honestly have no idea how your how your uh, work came on my feed but it came on my feed i'm I'm grateful that Mm -hmm. it did um but yeah i mean like your images uh are are just so dense if, if that's a good word you know there's so there's so many layers um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of depth, um, to your images. Uh, can you, can you give, uh, or can you explain a little bit more about like how your thought process goes when, when you are crafting, um, crafting an image, like, you know, through, through pre-production or, or, or lookbooks and stuff like that? Yeah. So depth is like, is a big one that I'm always, always, always looking for. I think that's part of the reason why I'm so drawn to full frame cameras because they just give you more depth just shallow depth of field. Um, so th- that's something I'm very cognitive about. Right. And, and, and like through, through studying, um, you know, I'm a big uh, proponent of having an inspiration library if you're a cinematographer. So just, I always, whenever I watch movies, I'm at my computer and it takes screenshots. Um, and then I'll just always look back to those and, and look at the ones that really had an impact on me. And, uh, and a lot of them had a lot of depth and, and obviously it's something that, you know, people are talking, they talk about a lot, right? Like depth is so important. And I kind of made that discovery my own when someone could have just ended up telling me and that probably would have saved me so much time, but um, hugely important. So just like, yeah, how can you maximize that? You know, there's a ton of different ways through lighting, through blocking, through, through placement of camera and talent. And um, I, yeah, I think that it's interesting that that was like the first thing that kind of drew you uh drew you in because that's something that i think is like number 
pretty high on the list of importance for like to make a, a really compelling image, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like there's nothing that, that doesn't, when I look at everything, like from your lighting breakdowns, there's, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of difficult to, to, to define like what depth is because there's, right. uh, there's so many ways you can, you can create depth. But, yeah. um, I mean, there's like, my eye always knows where to look at in your image and it knows, you know, there's so many, again, there, there's so many ways that you're doing it through like color contrast and, you know, exposure differences. Um, but yeah, I mean, can you, uh, like if, if, if there is one breakdown, like the one you did recently, the one you posted recently, um, with the, the, uh, the car, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the, uh, the car breakdown. Yeah. What, mm-hmm. what was, what was the, um, the, the the inspiration for that like was there a certain movie that you were looking at as far as like trying to uh replicate the look or or that you kind of were inspired by you know yeah there was this it's a movie called no country oh no sorry (laughs) not no country romance but uh hell or high water so which is just like the only inspiration came from the two shot of them in the car it's a very very beautiful two shots at dusk um so it's a little bit different but i very like the the composition was almost a one-to-one match uh, maybe not that's probably wrong but that that was the inspiration and then you know uh, uh my producer and i we were looking at like what what we had available that could kind of replicate that look we didn't have anything so we ended up going with just like what we what we thought would be the best and it was this kind of valley of trees which actually is one of my favorite shots like i've ever taken i just love the like the green um, it's just like an overall amount of green. We had a green Camaro with all, with all the trees and they're like really nicely backlit. And then, you know, to talk more about that depth, like we were as far up on that road as we could be to get that valley of trees. And then obviously shallow depth of field, 50 millimeter on a full frame camera. And uh, yeah, it was just, just went to, to light it naturally, as natural as we could. And um, yeah. Nice, man. Are there are there times where, you know, kind of speaking, uh, speaking in terms of the equipment or the gear, the resource that you uh, might or might not have, you know, like say for, for this one, um, uh, for, for, for the car, for the car example, um, what are some of the, uh, I guess, what are the, some of the ways you, you can kind of get around not having the, the lighting that you might want on the day, you know, like say, say if you did need something like um, a 6k or like an M40, but you don't, have any kind of means to get one you know are there are there certain certain um like tips or maybe like suggestions you could recommend to other people who are kind of maybe they'll be in that situation in the future and don't have an m40 lying around you know right yeah that's a tough one um because i'd struggle with that as well a lot i'm sure a lot like every you know cinematographer that doesn't have unlimited budgets is going to struggle with that you can you can do stuff in post so, um, like, let's say you have, uh, you know, an M18 and you need to replicate to look like an M40. That's might be as like as good as you can get it. Um, you can bring up the highlights in post, right? So, so you could, you know, make a power window over wherever the high, if it's a hard light, assuming, you know, if it's shining hard light and it's making a patch of, of light, an M40 or the real sun, which is what we're all trying to replicate, I think most of the time would be a lot brighter. Um, so if you just bring up those highlights in post, it can kind of cheat it and you, 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 it's good to be cognitive about those things. I talk about that a lot, like, especially as independent filmmakers, knowing what you can do in post will save you time and money. 
because you might not need that next piece of equipment in, in certain cases, right? Um, then the other thing is just like, uh, um, let's see for that one. That's a good question. Um, uh, so hard light is can be is it can be really hard to replicate. So like, um, you know, replicating the sun, trying to replicate the sun with an M eighteen can be difficult if it's if you're in the daytime. So sometimes you might want to just do all soft light and have no hard light. You know what I mean? Just put um, or get rid of any like get rid of the actual sun. I've done that a couple times by by flagging it off. That way, your whatever your your light is, um, it has enough output to really have the same contrast ratio as the actual sun if it was coming in. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, that does. Yeah, it's 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 kind of like you know knowing knowing the ins and outs of like the tools that you have and what you can and can't do. Um, and yeah. I feel like a lot of people can learn um, can learn from that, and especially that's something that I learned as I you know continue to progress through through my own uh, my own craft and my my career is you know a lot of times. I, you know, we don't have access to, to really large, large fixtures, you know, um, but yeah. things like, uh, creating little power windows in, in, in DaVinci Resolve and bring up the highlights or flagging off the sun and getting it out of the shot completely that we have more control. Like, like you said, yeah. um, helps out, helps out a ton, you know? Um, and yeah, I kind of, you know, interesting when we were talking about full frame, um, was, uh, was was full frame sort of new to you the past couple of years, or, or were you used to using like Super Thirty Five for a while, or some other sensor uh, size? Oh, I'm sorry, the last part cut out. I'm so sorry. Can you oh yeah, me? no, no problem at all. Um, so like with speaking with with full frame, um, has full frame been been something that you've been looking at for for a while? Like, were you used to shooting on Super Thirty Five or or a similar sensor size in the past? Yeah, I, I Super Thirty Five is the only sensor that I, I've worked with um, other than full frame. And I remember I shot this short film and I, I love wide angle lenses, not crazy wide, but like, you know, 18 on a super 35 or a 24 on a full frame. Like that's my bread and butter, even for close-ups and stuff like that. And I remember thinking uh, on a super 35 on an 18 millimeter, I was like, this just, if it was just a little bit more, if there was a little more depth of field, shallow depth of field, like this would be like amazing. Um, and that's exactly what full frame did. It's like, it's just a little bit more, and to me, it's just like, uh, that's where it, it really makes a difference. Like if you're on a 50 millimeter or an 85 millimeter, I wouldn't say there's much of a difference. In fact, sometimes being on like an 85 on a full frame at 1.4 is just way too much, it's way too shallow. But if you're on a 24 millimeter and an F 1.4 on a full frame sensor, you get this beautiful balance of, of seeing like a lot of the world, right? And, and, and you can even see the production design or there's detail. It's not so out of focus, but at the same time, you get that depth of field that really just um, it, it's like what you were talking about earlier, just brings your eyes exactly to where, you know, the cinematographer wants it to be. And so, and, and I'm a big fan of production design and I, I, I do like to see the world. And like, that's why, like, I think that it's such a beautiful balance that, that we weren't able to get before. Really curious. Uh, about like you know Lexus 65 or working on large format cameras to see what what that's like like I'd imagine so 35 millimeter would be the 24 equivalent and just what what that looks like could be even cooler so someday yeah. we'll see yeah yeah I mean you know speaking speaking with with uh with like the the full frame the full frame sensor is that um is that the reason why you went with the the FX9 compared to like some other uh, camera systems out there like the like the Mini LF or you know Red or anything like that. 
Yeah, I think price point, I wanted to stay like within like 10 to 15,000. And so it was between that and the uh, and an Amira. So yeah, exactly. The, the the whole decision was based on full front, full frame, because I really believe that that's the future of cinematography. Like that's kind of the the next stage. I mean, obviously, it's it's very obvious. Um, that's where everything is going. But um, uh, the FX nine had like it was because I really all I care about. There's two things I care about with the cameras: internal NDs and image quality. So red was kind of out of it for me because they don't have internal NDs and this is too slow. And uh, so really the only one for a long time was the Alexa for me. Like I would, I would refuse to shoot anything unless it was on the Alexa, but the FX9, man, like it's, it's, it looks good. Like they got their color science down. Um, I actually just worked with the FX6 recently and that one, that one is even, even crazier for the price. I mean, it's insane, $5,500. I mean, it's it's getting easier and easier to to uh, to make content, which is really awesome because before it used to be such a, a rich person's hobby, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even even before, even in days of film, it was pretty much like you know, you you either had a a lot of money or you didn't. And then even after when digital came around, it was you know, if you don't have a hundred thousand dollars for you know, um, for an XT or for a red, it was like, you know, you're, you're left with uh, a DSLR or something like that, you know? Right, um, right. But yeah, for like 10, $15,000 for an FX nine, like the, the images I've seen from it are incredible, you know? And I know a lot of, um, I know a lot of people in, at least in, in my area who are looking at like the FX nine versus like say a mini LF, just because the, the, it's such a good camera all, all around, you know, from like yeah. the, the built-in NDs and the um, the resolution and the and the full frame sensor and all that, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I it's it, it, I would say it's it competes for sure with like the Mini LF. I mean, that's pretty. It's like and when it's one eighth the price, one sixth the price. I don't know, which is crazy. But and then at the same time, you know, like Black Magic cameras, they compete with the FX9. You know. Uh, which is also one tenth the price. So it's just it's which is awesome. And even it's still expensive. Everything's still expensive. Film stuff is very expensive still, but it's getting so much cheaper, uh, which is really really cool. So yeah, it's awesome to see. Is there any other piece of gear that you that you own besides the FX sign that you that you that you would typically bring on set? Like um, uh, do you have like any lights or lenses or anything like that? Yeah, I think I own too much gear. I'm one of those people. I'm sure you're probably the same, right? We just own too much gear. Um, yeah, I, I'm try, I try to be very meticulous about, about my gear and really only get what I, what I know I'm going to use. I, I've done a pretty good job at that. Um, I have like a whole package. I mean, like light mats, like that, that's my bread and butter. Like that was the, before I even bought a cinema camera, I bought a light mat 4 plus, which is, which is kind of stupid. Like, why would I do that? Um, but, but that was like the first thing I bought and I've used that, you know, no regrets by I'm dropping like, it was like 3000 at the time I was shooting on a Canon 70 D no regret. I used that every, almost every single shoot that I've ever been on. I used the Lightmap 4 plus partly because I have it. Um, but partly because it's just a really great fixture and it's an industry standard and, um, yeah, it's really good. I would recommend it. There's a lot of people who see my breakdowns and they're like, they're messaging me about like, oh, I want to get a light mat now or like, what should I get? You know, it's like, it's funny. 
Yeah, I do, I, I do like the light bats just because of like their footprint. They're really small compared to like um like even say like 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 a like a sky panel S60 or like um like a Kino Flow like a 450 celeb, you know, they're yeah they're not huge lights but they are huge lights in a way you know where like if you don't have a combo stand like you're kind of like you're kind of screwed with you're kind of screwed without a combo stand you know yeah um and i like the footprint and and the output and, and just how um how what's the word versatile the line mats are um yeah yeah and then so i guess that kind of get, got you on on the ball of purchasing like like a, like a two plus and like a one kind of rounding yeah. out the kit exactly yeah that's the thing it's just so versatile you know, and like nobody uses it um, like I do in like probably just just because I, I don't have access to other lights. Um, but like I think people are really surprised uh, seeing me like push it through uh, like a six by muslin or something, because traditionally you would use either, you know, a sky panel or something more punchy like that. And um, and it, they're just so capable. And that's the thing. Um, and you can, you know, rigging them is huge. Like yeah you can do so much with them and like you said having the small fruit footprint is really really great because you know like i'm sure you know that space on set goes away way too quick when you have all these flags and diffusions and and sky panels right it's there's there's not enough to go around so yeah 100 100 yeah um was there so i actually one of my friends wanted wanted me to ask you this this uh this question he's also um a cinematographer based in uh the pasadena area uh, but he wanted to uh, he wanted to ask um, when you're when you're on set and maybe maybe you have um, two different questions depending on, on the scenario. But yeah. uh, how important is 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 um, having like a pre light day versus you know maybe you don't have that pre light day and you have to just show up on the day and start um, uh, tinkering around with like the image or with with the lighting mm-hmm. um, more so. Uh, do you are you really hardcore on like okay this is like what I'm gonna go with this is exactly how I'm gonna op- how to execute it this is the plan we're gonna go or do you always leave a little bit of room to like you know massage and tinker the image when you're actually on on the day? Yeah, definitely. It depends for for the first part of the question about pre lighting. It depends on the uh, the type of location and and the type of scene. Um, if, if you can afford to pre-light, oh yeah, always. Like I'll, if, if we have the opportunity to pre-light, I'll definitely do that because I, I like to get things dialed in. But in terms of like coming in with a plan, I always have a plan A, a plan B, sometimes a plan C. Um, but I do, we do, I do fiddle a lot on set, you know, because uh, a lot of the times you think something's going to work um and and it doesn't right like like for a a good example of this is is looking at lighting breakdowns um because you you know roger deakins he posts lighting breakdowns or he used to a lot and you can the lighting breakdowns are really good to like understand how they did this specific shot but if you tried and, and implemented it in your own scene in a different location with different talent in a whole different scenario it's not going to end up being the same right so that's something that uh, I learned pretty early on. Um, and like your, your plans, unless you're really, really good, um, it's not going to go, it's not going to go to plan. Right. Uh, it takes a lot of experience to know what works and what doesn't. And, and a lot of uh, it's a trial and error. And I think I'm still at the stage where, where there is a bit of trial and error. Uh, I'm getting better, but yeah, it's always, always fiddling around nonstop until the AD 
or someone tells me we have to shoot it and then it's like ah fun (laughs) (laughs) i've been there plenty of times man uh when you're when you're um judging exposure on the day are are there certain tools that you always use um like waveforms or false color or do you have do you use a light meter yeah waveform uh mainly just to check my black point and and uh white point but then false color pretty much exclusively yeah yeah how about you uh, pretty much for me, I kind of do the same. I'll, I'll, I'll hit waveform just really quick to see like where my levels are between, I get my mm-hmm. blacks and my, and my, and my highlights. And yeah. then, and then false color is usually, uh, like probably like the last couple minutes I have left, I'll hit false color just to see where things are. And if something's okay. looking really hot then I'll be like, Oh, okay. You know, like what could I do within five minutes that I have left, you know? Um, but so yeah. you, go, you go by eye first and then you <laughs> do false color. I, I do just because I think over time I used to I used to do the opposite I used to always I you know find the frame the camera's set right so we're gonna we're gonna shoot this 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 scene the camera's gonna yeah. be right here I would hit a false color and I'll leave false color on and then I would start um, adjusting the lighting appropriately for that mm-hmm. um, and then over time I I just found a really good um, conversion LUT that I really like. And it's been very consistent. And I know when I go, every time I've brought the image back into post, I've had so much more room than what the LUT was showing me. Um, so in that way, it's made me a little bit faster on set. But I always, before I, again, so those last like 10 minutes or so, I'll hit false color and then I'll see exactly where where things are um, and then how I can tweak it from there. Um, so I, I think everyone's uh, process is, is a little bit is a little bit different. Um, yeah. but yeah, I always use false color just because it's so accurate. It's so easy. Like I know, I know if someone's blown out cause it just says red. Like, okay. That's going to blow right. out, you know? Um, totally. yeah. Whereas on, on a, on a, if you're just looking at the monitor, sometimes you're, it's, it's, it's better, it's better to be safe than sorry. And you know, you don't want to just shoot it and be like, Oh crap. I freaking blew out this, this thing completely. I didn't, I didn't take the time to hit, just hit false color for a second, you know? Right. Right. One thing that I want to get in the habit of doing more too, I don't know if you do this, is like, why, that, that's one thing about the FX9 you can't do is turn off the LUT quickly. Because, you know, checking false color in, in the log is really important too because sometimes you want to get the maximum latitude in your highlights or shadows and, and you want to see, you know, it's good to see if you're blowing out, if you're really blowing out or if it's just the LUT that's blowing out, you know? Do you do that? Do you turn off the, the, the LUT and, and check false color? I do, yeah. I always, I actually, because I, I, I check the uh, my small HD monitor that I have. I don't use the yeah. the one that comes with the with the FS7. Um, I think the FX9 actually has, uh, I, I, th- I think it, I think it enables and disables the let a little bit different on the FX9. Um, but with the with the small HD, yeah, you have an option to actually when you turn on um a false color, you have an option to automatically turn off the let when it does that. So you're looking at the oh, log yeah, image. That's right. Yeah, so uh-huh. that way you're looking at the log cool. image, and I typically do that. Um, and again, just to kind of see where where things are, you know, where if some things are going to be really blown out, and I'm looking at the LUT. If the LUT show that it's blown out, but if I turn it off and I still got, you know, if I'm like seventy RRE, I'm okay, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good, you know, without without the LUT on. So yeah, right. the, yeah, the, yeah I yeah. guess the LUT for me is really just because sometimes the client is there or the agency's there, and you know, they might say, "Yeah, oh, it's looking a little dark." And so that's why I have the load on, so that way it looks a little bit, a little, a little bit bright, a little bit brighter for them. Um, yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, that's man. important. Yeah, yeah, even for us to view, right? We got to see what it looks like final. 
or close to final stuff. Yeah. Do you use like do you use just the standard uh, Rec Seven Hundred Nine that the camera comes with, or do you have your own LUT that you use for the FX Nine? I don't even know how to say say his name, honestly. So I'm gonna just uh, Phantom Lots. Boom. There we go. Got it. Oh, yeah, Phantom so Lots. Okay. I, have you heard of those? I I have heard of them. I never use them though. Yeah. So uh, he makes Phantom Lots, which for pretty much all the Sony cameras, I think he does one for Blackmagic as well, and they replicate the look of RE Rec 709, and they're really good, man. Uh, that's that's what I use for a while. I was using the S 709. Um, it's a little bit green, and and, uh, and his just 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 corrects it all, makes it really really pretty, and and looks like an Alexa. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. Yeah, I definitely gotta check that one out too. You know, do you um, use what's your main camera? You use a Blackmagic, you say? No, I use the uh, the FS7. FS7, dude, you should check them out then. You should yeah. check them out. Found yeah, for sure, man. I, yeah, I've heard of them. I just never, I've never. I guess I've just I just never tried them out, but now I'm gonna try them out because yeah. you know because you gotta get the plug-in. So, <laughs> um, totally. I mean, forty bucks to make it look like an Alexa, not a bad deal. Not, not a bad, bad not a not a bad price point at all, man. You know, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> how uh, you know I, how how important is um is creative freedom to you? You know, like uh, say if you have a project you're working on and and there's um. You know the director obviously has has his or her vision for for the for the whatever it is the the spec the spec ad or the or the or the short film or or whatever you might be filming. Um, how important is it for you as a cinematographer to also have the freedom to 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 visually stylize the um, um, the project that you're working on? Yeah, it's so important to me. It's it's the reason why I do this. If I it, if I was to just be, you know, get told what to do or asked to do one thing, I, I would just not have a good time at all. I really like to be involved in the creative process and offer suggestions. And again, it comes back to that, like putting a stamp on it. Like I want it, I want it to be something that I'm proud of, and I want it to be something that that's me. And uh, and I think that's something a lot of cinematographers feel as well, like you know, having their voice. Um, so yeah, it's 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 good. I would say that you know, uh, maybe it can get. I can take it a little too far sometimes and, and overstep on some certain boundaries. Uh, it's happened before, so that I maybe I got to work on that a little bit. But it is very 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 important to me. Yeah, how about you? Is it important to you? I it definitely is. You know, it's it's it's. Um, I, I guess I guess the 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 way that I've been working around it is. Um, picking the battles that you can win, you know, or, or I guess choosing yeah. the right battles you can win certain ones. Uh, I will always, uh, like 90% of the time, I always say yes. You know, if someone, if, if the director is asking you, Hey, can we do this? Or can we try this? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, let, let's, let's do it. Even if I know in the back of my head, like this probably won't work, but whatever, you know, let's just try it. You know, mm-hmm. we got, we got mm-hmm. some time. Uh, and then I kind of use that as sort of like my, um, uh, my little, my little crutch so that when, there is that one or two times when they're asking for something that just really is not going to, not going to fly, you know? Um, that's when I just say, yeah, no, sorry. Like not going to happen, you know, it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to work. You know, especially if it's something that like, you know, if, uh, certain, certain directors or whoever, whoever is, is really in charge of the day is usually the director. If they're, if they're asking for a certain shot, right. That, that in their mind looks or in their head looks really cool 
and you're like, yeah, well, I don't have a techno crane right now. So, right. you know, like that's not no. going to happen, you know? Yeah, exactly. Or, uh, hey, can we shoot this scene right now? And it's like, yeah, you know, it's like 2 p.m. right now and we're outside. It's, yeah, you know, like maybe we shoot this later, you know, inside somewhere, you know? Um, right. So that's kind of where I've grown. Whereas before I was probably more stern. I was like, no, like, no, like not going to happen. I've I've learned to kind of let go of my ego a little bit and be like, yeah, like, let's just try it, you know, and then kind of have those those two, you know, um, ace in the hole cards that I pull out and, you know, just just kind of of showing a sign of good faith and be like, yeah, nah, not going to happen right now, you know, so... Yeah, that's important. We just said losing the ego. That's that's important too, to a degree, you know, because ego can be good sometimes. Like you know, just in terms of like getting you places, because ego a lot of time is like self belief, right? If you think that you're the shit, you know, a lot of the times that will translate in the sense that you're gonna go for it. You're gonna you're gonna, which can be good, but and then like what you're describing, it can be pretty bad, right? Like I, I've had that a similar experience to you as well where my ego got in the way and, uh, and then, you know, they were, we were fitting and battering about it and, uh, we finally did it their way and they were right. It looked good or something like that. You know what I mean? So, um, but also something that I found like to, to, to avoid uh, a lot of those like arguments on set about, you know, like certain shots is, is prep. And that's why I'm so, so, so for prep because it saves so much discussion on set saves so much time and you know it's a it, again prep is a luxury it's like it, it you don't get it a lot for for these lower budget stuff or a lot of client work um especially when yeah when you, it's like more of an indie projects which is a shame because it's such an advantage you know what i mean being able to prep so. yeah no I, I agree that's something that i think i i learned along the way was if you know i kind of taking a catalog of all the good shoots versus all the bad shoots it's like the good shoots had a lot of pre-pro you know there were a lot of you know meetings or or, or an appropriate amount of meetings um there was a lot of uh discussion you know like kind of throwing ideas off off of each other and usually those ones kind of went uh or for the most part went pretty well um it's the ones where you don't aren't able to do the pre-production where sometimes you know um, heads are butting a little bit on on what the visuals should be like or or how um, how the lighting should be and things like that you know so pre production like like you said if to me is like it saves you so much time on set and it saves you so much headaches down the road too yeah 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 um, well you know beyond beyond like the FX nine uh, are are there any tools that like you always have on set with you like um is there is there like a monitor that you use all the time or is there uh, you know, like, like a certain part, a certain, like, you know, uh, uh, favorite, I don't know, tripod you're bringing something, something like that, you know? Yeah, there's a couple, there's a few that I'm always using on set with me. I do have a monitor. I have a 17 inch Sony, uh, PVM a 170, which is an OLED monitor. Um, and I prefer OLED just because it has the best contrast ratio and I want to see true blacks um so that's i think i'll always lean towards having an oled as my reference monitor uh, it also has false color you know all the bells and whistles um and then my color meter is one that i that i using all the time as well so that's kind of a recent purchase i got in the last maybe the last six seven months but just being able to you know get the exact right color temperature 
because I'm actually colorblind uh, slightly. So I always had trouble seeing slightly different um, hues that people would tell me like, oh, this is too green. This is too too blue or too warm or these these two lights aren't matching. I couldn't see with my eye. Um, so having that color meter on set is is a really, really great help. And also you get to see cool stuff like, you know, like what do you think is the, I don't know if you've ever metered or maybe you just know, but what do you think is is dusk, like the color temper of dusk, dusk, color temperature of dusk, if you had to guess. That's a, a dusk, like 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 a blue hour? Yeah. Right, like blue hour? Um, mm -hmm. Or like, you know, yeah, yeah, or right when the sun sets, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, like probably over 6,000 Kelvin, right? 6,000, yeah, well, if yeah. you had to guess. Just, if I had to guess, guess, I don't know, yeah. 7,500 Kelvin. Dude, it's like, it's like, 10 to 13,000 Kelvin. Oh, down way off. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it, it's pretty blue. It's pretty blue, right? And uh, so just knowing that, like, now you can start lighting dusk shots, right? Because uh, for me, at least, the big thing about lighting dusk shots was trying to figure out, okay, how do I match this ambient? It never looked right. It always looked too warm or too blue or too magenta. But now you just dial it in and, and you nail it. And uh, I, the, no, you don't live in the Bay, but in the Bay we had, um, there was that time, I'm sure you saw photos of it, where everything was just red outside. It looked like Blade Runner. Yeah, right? I remember that. Um, I remember that. Yep. It was due to the fires and I took a reading, 3,200 Kelvin. It looked way more, way more red than 3,200 Kelvin, but it was 3,200 Kelvin. So just little stuff like that is really cool to know and, and to be able to replicate natural light because that's that's what it, i'm all about you know it's like trying to make it, i don't want to feel anything to feel sourcey i want to replicate nature as is with a lot of cinematographers and so having a color meter though they are pretty expensive has been like like very very helpful in that in that goal you know what i mean yeah 100 percent. i think i think having a tool like that to to kind of keep that um you know, not only create things that are consistent, but also to be very like specific, you know, kind of going, kind of going back to one of the, uh, the main points that you were talking about earlier is, you know, like having, making things sure that they're like very, very specific, you know, and yeah. a color meter kind of helps, uh, will definitely helps you to, to get that, that accurate reading that you need, you know? Totally. And another thing, just to go off on this guy, I'm getting a little ranty now, but like, there's so much, things are so much more green in real life than you think. Like sun travels through through trees, branches, and it's hitting all that green foliage. And you you need like a, a plus one eighth green to, to really match it. You know, if you just put the lamp right here and you and you're wondering why this light feels sourcey and it doesn't feel the same, it's it could be because it's not green enough or or vice versa. It's too green if you're dealing with uh, fluorescence or it's too magenta if you're dealing with fluorescence and stuff like that. That's just another thing that, that's that's pretty useful. Yeah, yeah. You know, also like with with um, especially with like day exteriors, like you know, when when you're looking at the monitor for a lot, for a lot of people, what I suggest to them is is you know look at exactly what's around you. You know, because if you have a lot of sun coming around, then it's that sun's bouncing off of everything, like literally everything around yeah. you. You know, it could yeah. be green from the trees, could be brown from the dirt, uh, or if it's sand, it could be uh, you know, like a harsh bounce from the, the concrete sidewalk and all mm -hmm. kinds of stuff, you know? So a lot of times it, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, trying to find like the right angle and then also how to like shape, you know, how kind of going back to the grip days is like how to shape the light 
with just what's around you, you know, and a lot of yeah. that is flagging it off or using neg, um, uh, you know, things like that. So, um, but yeah, man, is, is there, is there, um, is, is there anything that you're looking forward to for 2000 for, uh, for next year, 2021, like any, um, projects that you want to try to get off the ground, uh, personal stuff or, or, you know, professional stuff. Yeah. I got like a, I got a little checklist right above my bed. Um, I'll just, getting a Vimeo staff pick is one of them. That's going to be a goal of mine. Same. Pretty far-fetched <laughs> dream. You too. Same. Yeah. Man. I don't think it's going to be easy. It's going to be very, very hard. Um, I'm sure you just got to make something really, really good, which is really, really hard. But uh, yeah, that's a goal of mine. You know, I just want to shoot more, obviously, like stuff that I'm really passionate about because, um, you know, I get a lot of job offers, but it, a lot of it's just stuff that either don't have the budget to, to you know, uh, give us time to prep, um, to, you know, give the, the scenes the time they need to set up. So I, I'm turning down a lot of work and there's not really a lot of like stuff that I'm super passionate about about so i'm hoping 2021 is gonna bring a lot more of those and i have a good feeling about it and if not yeah. i'll just i'll just uh make make my own stuff until until then you know 100 man yeah so it's always uh it, it's always kind of being strong-willed as far as the stuff that, that you want to shoot and the stuff you don't want to shoot and um right. yeah you know like every every now and then or, or maybe more more often than not uh, I think a lot of us get hit up for like super running gun type of stuff. Super, you know, not only is a running gun, it's low budget um, mm-hmm. and it's not very, uh, very uh, fruitful for us, you know, to do both as uh, on the business side, but also on the creative side, you know? Um, yeah. And I think uh, sticking with your guns, you know, and, and working with the people that you really want to work has always um, helped me out, you know, and also kind of like yeah. fulfilled, because yeah. you get burned out just doing running gun all the time. At least I did, and it got to a certain point where I was like, "Yeah, you know, I I can't do this anymore." You know, so that when I when I really just put put my foot down and said, you know, like uh, if, if if I can if I can just get enough of my work out there that pushes the bar away from that running gun type of um type of work, uh, then I should be able to attract those types of clients. And like that's what happened. You know, it, I mean, it took a long yeah. time. It wasn't overnight or anything like that. Um, but, but yeah, I, you just get burnt out doing running gun a lot. At least for, at least I do, you know, I don't know. You might feel the same way. Yeah, I definitely feel the same way, but also to, to kind of talk about what you're saying about like putting yourself out there and like the stuff that you want to be doing. That is like been really, really key for me because I, I also didn't want to go down that path. I know a lot of people did it a lot longer than, than I have like I don't know how just because like like you're saying it's it's hard to deal with and eventually you get burnt out but um you know I did that one documentary the edge of purpose and I was like eh, I don't really want to do this anymore and I was just trying to figure out how to you know not do that anymore and the solution ended up being I I, I shot an entire cinematography reel just from scratch partly because I wanted to see if it was possible I didn't know if it, if it could be done and partly because I, I wanted, I knew what type of work I wanted to be doing. And I only wanted to showcase that type of work. Whereas if I made an actual reel with, with the content that I shot, it would have been a whole bunch of different type of stuff, you know, as, as a lot of people's reels are, um, you know, nothing wrong with that. I just, I really wanted to be niche down. Um, and that's something that you, you get when you, you only get when you have like 10 years of experience as a cinematographer you know, it's 
So it's like simple solution that I'm sure every cinematographer has thought about, right? Like, like just shooting your own reel, but it's just something that, uh, I don't know. Have you thought about that? I'm sure yeah. Have, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I have, I actually updated my, my reel recently. Um, and it's, 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 it's sort of, uh, a combination of like stuff from like 2017, 2018, last year, this year, you know, it's, it's just, it's just picking out like the best stuff out of like the work that I've been hired, I've been hired to do, you know? Um, and it would be, it would be ideal if, if everything on there was exactly the type of work that I wanted to do, you know, because it's Mm -hmm. like, it's like some lifestyle stuff and then it's some like branded doc stuff. Then it's some spec stuff. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah, but that's the way it has to be too. You know, it's like, yeah, like that's just, that's, it's crazy. I mean, it's not crazy. It's just like, it's just the thing that's crazy is that, and it's not even crazy because it makes sense, but in order to get work, you have to have work to show for, but in order to have work to show for, you have to get work. It's such a catch 22. Yeah. Uh, it's just, yeah. So. Yeah. No, hundred percent, man. Is, uh, did, did Sony, uh, did Sony reach out to you with, with in regards to your, your reel? They reached out to me. Yeah. Afterwards, um, at when it, when it was, not complete, but I posted some BTS like with the with the Sony FX on and like a Fisher dolly, and they saw that. Well, not yeah. Long story short, they saw that, reached out to me, and then I sent them the reel, and then they really liked it, and then yeah, such that. Nice man, yeah, because I, I think I saw you were on, um, or and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were on like a like a panel, like a panel discussion of the FX9 with some other yeah. cinematographers. Yeah, how was how was that yeah, experience yeah. like? I was really cool. I was really cool because it was, um, it was like, I just released the reel and it was just, um, it, yeah, it was nice to see that like, you know, a company as big as Sony, uh, appreciated it. And, um, cause it was a lot of hard work, uh, sweat and tears, I would say went into it, not blood, but yeah, a lot of hard work, two months, three months. So it was really nice to see it being recognized and, and appreciated. And I'm sure like that, you know, as much as maybe we don't like to admit uh, a lot of creatives, like that's, you know, that is some of the best part is being, is being recognized for, for your hard work. Um, and usually that means that the, the film or project that you're working on is successful, right? Yeah, no, hundred percent, man. hundred percent. Uh, well, Hey, you know, one last thing I wanted, I wanted to, I wanted to ask, um, and then, you know, the rest of it, we can, we can kind of just kind of just, uh, just chat for a little bit, but, um, yeah, is there yeah. any, is there anything that, is there any piece of advice that you would give to, um, your younger self, you know, now based upon where you are now? My younger self, uh, you know, uh, probably a lot, I'd say a lot. Um, but what I'd say to my younger self would be a little bit different than what I'd say to like an aspiring cinematographer uh that's coming up now to myself i would say like it you know when you compare yourself to others because you will you always are going to compare yourself to others know that it's not talent that will get you to to their level it's just hard work and and that's the truth of it um and then the other thing i would say because because fortunately i i took some steps that i think are, are really crucial for anyone to take and so this is more advice I'd give to other aspiring cinematographers. It's that if people aren't going to invest in you, invest in yourself. And that's the case with, I think, everyone when they're starting out, nobody's going to trust you. 
to shoot this, or at least the scale, right? The, or the stuff that you want to be shooting. So invest in yourself, buy gear. I'm a big proponent of buying gear. You are as well. Um, there's a lot of people like us. And I think that the biggest advantage it allows you is to practice, is to, to keep shooting and to keep getting better and better. And that's the number one way, in my opinion, to, to climb the ranks as opposed to going the, the route, you know, gaffing for 10 years and then DPing or, you know, being a camera assistant and operator and stuff like that. That's what I would say. Alrighty, that is going to do it. Many thanks to Kenzen Takahashi for coming on to the uh, coming on to the show. I really appreciate uh, everything that he was able to share uh, with us, his journey, his his process, um, and uh, and again, just kind of thoughts on how he goes about his uh, his cinematography and working uh, working on set, his visual style, uh, and also you know where uh, he where he sees himself um, in the future. Uh, so again, if you guys haven't rated the uh, podcast, I really appreciate if you can leave uh, a rating, uh, whether that is one star or five star or something in between. Uh, it just helps me to know exactly uh, where the podcast uh, uh, sits uh, quality wise. Um, share it with your friends if you do have an opportunity to do so. Again, I really appreciate it. It kind of just spreads the word and it spreads the um, the joy, the information, the knowledge and the experiences from so many uh, people, including myself and other cinematographers from around the world. And uh, I hope you guys have an amazing day, an amazing weekend, whenever you're listening to this podcast episode, and I will see you next time.